what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm AC Rowe. This is The Doc Project. There's this classic modern documentary. It's called The Queen of Versailles. If you haven't seen it, for one, do so. It's about this grotesquely wealthy American family. The film follows Jackie and David Siegel, billionaire owners of Westgate Resorts, what was, back in the mid-2000s, the largest timeshare company in the world. The doc had a simple premise, a view into the lives of the 1%. Follow this family, see inside their wealth, as they build their very own Versailles in Florida. So the doc makers start filming. Then... 2008 happens, the Great Recession, and this family is hit. Their timeshare chain suffers, their wealth plummets. I mean, let's be serious here, they're still richer than just about everybody else, but it's all very dramatic. The doc ends up being this fascinating look at the cynicism of the American dream through this one family in the midst of an economic crisis. The doc makers didn't plan it, but they follow all of it. That's the thing about making documentaries. We work so far out, months in advance, that while we're in the middle of a story, things change. Sometimes, the whole world changes. That's what happened with the doc you're about to hear. It was made before COVID-19, in a world that looked very different from today. One where you could travel easily, and where illness and death were a part of reality, but weren't the subtext to every conversation. For a long time, we decided we could not put this story out. It just seemed too lighthearted for everything that was going on. But now, we want you to hear it, and to hear what happened next. Eva Vonijescu is a journalist based in Toronto. Like so many Canadians, Eva was not born here, and she straddles two cultures. In her case, Canadian and Romanian, which means she sees the eccentricities of both. A big one in Romania is how people deal with death. In Romania, people are really open about it. More open than an open casket. If that joke wasn't for you, you will not like this story. But Eva, having grown up in Canada... She was really struck by this, this openness, this seeming obsession with death and planning for it. I'm going to hand things over to Eva with a story about the best laid plans. My grandparents live in Craiova, Romania. I'm out for a walk in the botanical gardens there with my grandmas and my mom. 
Her mom is describing the outfit she had a seamstress make some years ago. She says she's not sure that it fits now that she's gained weight. That's what happens, says my other grandma, my dad's mom. We just don't exercise like we should anymore. I ask my grandma if she's tried on her outfit since she had it made. She says no, that it's just there, ready for when she needs it. And when exactly will she need it? Well, never in her lifetime. Because this outfit, it's for her burial. My grandma tells us she also has a pair of shoes set aside for that day. She bought them in Canada years ago. But they're a size 36. And how would those fit? She seems baffled as to how her feet could ever have been so small. Luckily, when you don't actually have to walk in the shoes, there's a very practical solution. My grandma's cleaning lady suggested it. She said, when the shoes are too tight, you just cut the backs open to get them on. After all, you're lying on your back in a casket. No one can tell. This is just one of the very strange, yet everyday conversations I have with my grandmas when I visit Romania. I was born in Romania, but my parents moved to Canada in the early 90s. My dad came to do his PhD. He wasn't sure what to expect here, so he came on his own. My mom joined him nine months later. As his spouse, she was allowed a visa. But my brother and I weren't. So we stayed behind with our grandparents. My mom worked two jobs to pay for an immigration lawyer and a bigger apartment so that we could join them in Toronto. A year and a half later, we did. But growing up, I still spent a lot of time with my grandparents. It was expensive for them to visit us in Canada. So when they came, they would stay for six months at a time and also look after us. Babysitters were something I only read about in books or saw on TV. We'd also go back and visit my grandparents in Romania. Sometimes I'd stay for entire summers. Every time I'd visit, it was always the same. A few days in the city, Then we'd all pile into their tiny little car and do a tour, visiting every other relative within driving distance. And I mean every other relative, including the dead ones. We spent a lot of time in Romanian cemeteries. But we weren't just visiting the graves of my dead relatives. We were also visiting the ones my grandparents had prepared for themselves. My grandparents were always telling me about their burial preparations. They still do. Their main preoccupation? Where they will be buried. There's a shortage of burial space in Romania. Cremation hasn't really caught on there. But Romanians have found a practical solution. After seven years, you're allowed to reuse a grave. And how exactly does that work? This is my mom's mom again. I called her and asked her to explain. Is the seven-year rule an Orthodox Christian thing, I ask her? 
She says not all Orthodox Christians do it, but in the region in Romania where we're from, Oltenia, they do. She says, after seven years, if somebody dies, you can bury them on top of me, because I'll have decomposed. The word she uses for it in Romanian is putrezit, to rot. But what about the bones of the grave's previous occupant? Well, apparently, you could just scoop them up and put them in a smaller box at the foot of the grave. In effect, sharing the grave, ideally with another member of your family. My grandparents' grave has been ready for more than 20 years. There's a headstone with a photo of them on a ceramic tile. There's even an inscription with their names and dates of birth. Everything up and ready to go, except their date of death. It's been ready so long, in fact, that it started to fall apart. On a recent visit back, my mom and I were in a store buying shampoo when she remembered that we needed to find superglue so she could stick my grandparents' photo back onto their headstone. But here's where my grandparents' planning takes things to a whole other level. This grave that's falling apart, it's not their only one. In fact, they have two more plots one in each of their hometowns. They got the first one when my grandpa was diagnosed with cancer in 1997. It's in the village where my grandma grew up. Her second cousin is a priest there, and the plot is right next to his. Apparently, this makes it prime real estate, because the site will be well cared for. But once, while my grandma was visiting us in Canada, my grandpa went ahead and prepped a headstone for the two of them, without my grandma's input. She loves telling the story. She, you can have fost in Canada, el sapca și a făcut cruce și nu nu place nici poza nici a scris. My grandpa had chosen a photo of the two of them for the tile that's glued to the headstone. My grandma was outraged. First of all, it's an ugly photo, she says. And he wrote, "Here rests Stefanescu, Ion, and Tansa. My name isn't Tansa; it's Constantina." Tansa is a nickname for Constantina, but my grandma really hates it. She sees it as common, lacking in class. My mom chimes in. Big mistake. Big mistake, she says. And the third grave? That's in my grandpa's home village, in the same plot as his parents are buried. That came about after my grandparents had a fight. My grandpa was apparently so mad that he had a new headstone made there, just for him. My grandma's not on it at all. These days, though, it will likely be my grandma who decides where my grandpa is laid to rest. He has advanced Alzheimer's and moved into a senior's home last year. On my last trip to Romania, my grandma showed my mom and me the clothes grandpa put aside for his burial. She's showing us the suit he wanted to be buried in and the underwear and socks and shirt she's put aside. You can hear my mom mhming in the background, subdued. She says she doesn't think my grandpa chose that suit. But my grandma and I both like that one better. I mean, 
It's interesting, isn't it, that we want to honor these things, but... But we don't. Not even but we don't, but like... Does the person have any idea? No. It's just a matter of giving them comfort no now in life. That's exactly that. My grandma and I were more detached, or maybe more in denial about the prospect of my grandpa's death. It's easier that way. But for my mom, it's more sensitive. I can hear the tension in her voice, and listening back to this tape, it makes me cringe how casual I sound. Eventually, my mom and grandma end up arguing about whether to take some clothes to grandpa at the seniors' home instead of saving them. Saving them for what, my mom asks. Death? My grandma hasn't been to see my grandpa since he moved into the home. She says it's too hard for her to navigate the stairs. But I suspect it's just too hard to see the place she might end up, too. I find it hard to see my grandpa there. He doesn't remember me anymore or talk much. It's hard to know how he's really doing. I understand why my grandma would want to avoid that. But my mom, she goes to visit my grandpa every day while we're there. And my dad's side of the family, well, they're also obsessed with burial planning. My dad's mom, she's been working on her plans for more than 30 years, since around the time I was born. This is us talking about it in her living room in Craiova last year. Grandma's grave first belonged to her in-laws. When my step-grandpa died, Grandma buried him in the same grave as his parents. Then not long after, Grandma buried her mom there too. She says it's easier to visit just one grave. She's saying, I buried my husband, then my mom, and now me. No, I respond, not you, not quite yet. She agrees, laughing. Last year, in March, my mom and I went with her to the cemetery. She likes to take us there when we visit, to remind us where her plot is, so we'll know for when she's not around anymore. It's a Sunday and it's hot and sunny. Everyone's out with their families for a walk and to visit their dead. The cemetery has intersecting boulevards, mausoleums, grand statues. It's not unlike Père Lachaise in Paris. My mom and I stopped to look at a headstone with a picture of a fancy-looking couple on it. But my grandma is on a mission. That's her you hear, huffing and puffing as she hustles. She's in a rush to get to her. When we catch up to her at her grave, my grandma's already cleaning away the old flowers and candles from the last time she visited. She lights new candles and then lights incense, then walks around the grave with it to cleanse the spirits. Even though she has just one burial plot, my grandma's grave is home to a lot of people. It has two spots, side by side, and each spot has two levels, kind of like subterranean bunk beds, so there's space for four people. 
On one side are grandma's in-laws. The other side was meant for my grandma and step-grandpa. But now it's him and my great-grandma, his mother-in-law. As my grandma's lighting candles, my mom perches on the side of a grave to rest her legs. She's getting her hip replaced soon. If I happen to not be able to come, when one of them dies, you'll have to come. Oh, thank you. That's not any pressure. Well, you'd better wish that I was able to come. So I have to come take care of you through your surgery and come bury the grandparents. If they die at an inappropriate time. An <laughs> inappropriate Okay. Even though my dad is still alive and I have an older brother, somehow this type of caregiving falls to us, the women. I read one of the accumulating headstones at my grandma's grave. There's three now. Each has a picture of my grandma, who is not dead and buried yet, to ensure no confusion about who is buried where. It does not work. Who's the Kroitoru family? I ask my grandma. If you weren't already confused, here is when it gets really complicated. My grandma tells me that a few years ago, the husband of her upstairs neighbor, Mrs. Kroitoru, died rather suddenly, without having planned a burial. So my grandma decided to help out. She had the bones of her in-laws, now long dead, swept up and placed at the foot of the plot she had been planning to use herself. She told Mrs. Kroitoru she could bury her husband there. Mrs. Kroitoru assured my grandma she would move her husband once she had a chance to make other arrangements. But you know what they say about best laid plans. Before she could make those arrangements, Mrs. Kroitoru herself died suddenly and was laid to rest in the country. Now, my grandma will be buried on top of Mr. Kroitoru, resting for eternity, or at least seven years, with her neighbor's husband. Romania is a very religious country. You can see it in the sheer number of churches. You can hear it walking by them on a Sunday. The services are played over loudspeakers outside for people who don't fit inside the churches. The regularity with which death comes up in conversation in Romania is definitely different from what I'm used to in Canada. But it lets me learn more about the culture I come from, which is good because these traditions they probably won't live on in my family. You see, my parents, they don't seem to be following in their parents' footsteps. They don't have any plans. No grave sites, no crosses, no tiles, no nothing. Not even the most basic thing that most adults have. A will. Which leaves me in a tricky situation, especially since my mom lives in the U.S. My parents are still married, but they live in different countries because my mom moved for work. If one of them were to die suddenly, I don't really know what their final wishes are or how I would cope with the complications. I call up my mom and ask her why she and dad don't have any plans. I was talking about this with dad yesterday, and he's like, if you get a will, it's, it's, uh, it's like you're asking for it. Like It's like you're jinxing yourself and you're going to die just because you prepared a will. <laughs> this is so funny because I never talked to him about death, but it's amazing how he feels just like me. 
you know, I feel the exact same thing. I'm, I'm jinx, jinxing it. But, but here in Canada and in North America, you know, people usually get wills um, when they have kids or when they buy property because then, you know, when you have kids, you have to figure out who's going to take care of the kids in case you die and you need to have something set up for that. You and dad have this like misconception that if you die, all your stuff is automatically going to go to your spouse or your kids. But if you don't have a will, like the government gets involved and the process is a lot more complicated. And and like not only that, but you guys don't even have a simple situation, right? Like you have assets in multiple countries. I realize, Eva, in all honesty, we are both very inconsiderate. Uh, and we're also both very ignorant of all the complications that you guys would have to be put through. And that's maybe because we haven't gone through this experience with our own parents. So actually, you know, I spoke to a lawyer once. And when I explained the situation that I have property both in California and in Canada, she said, well, I'm sorry, I can't help you. This is complicated. These international situations are very complicated. You'll have to talk to a lawyer who specializes. And I didn't even mention Romania to her. So uh, uh, I had this thought that maybe the easiest way to deal with that is to just have a will for each country where I have property. Don't laugh. I think it's, it makes the most sense. Because well, it, it's ridiculous because you won't even prepare one. And now you're like, oh, okay, like going from zero and having no desire to prepare one to like, okay, I'll, instead I'll prepare three. Yes, I, I think it's the easiest way. So I, I actually I was thinking when I go to Romania next to actually uh, deal with the will for Romania. You know what I wanted to tell you is that the more you think about these things, I think the more comfortable you become with what you're going to do. And I think that's what happened for grandpa as well. You know, the more graves he built <laughs> and had stones, um, he kind of became comfortable with the idea. He, he was still afraid of dying, but maybe planning for it um, was his way of dealing with, with that fear. Yeah, I think so. I think so. After our call, I'm cautiously optimistic that my mom is going to put something down on paper, formally, with the lawyer. And I think it's because of all the talking we've been doing about my grandparents' plans. Talking and laughing about their plans also helps me manage my fear of them dying, at least most of the time. My grandparents played such a huge role in raising me. Every time I get a call from my parents, I worry that it's going to be that call the one that tells me one of my grandparents is no longer here. I've never actually had anyone close to me die, and I don't know whether all this talk will make that reality any easier. That story was produced by Eva Vonijescu with Allison Cook earlier this year, before the pandemic took hold. In the intervening months, death something that had felt like a well-planned-for distant eventuality, became very, very real. Earlier this week, Eva got some news about her grandfather. I woke up and I checked my phone and there it was. And it was just, it was just, I just felt deflated. It, it wasn't even like an immediate breakdown of emotions, but it was just like a, <sighs> he passed away. 
because we had heard on Friday that he had tested positive for COVID. So he tested positive and he passed away two days later. Eva, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm just so sorry that this is how this is gone. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Do they have a sense of how it happened? Yeah, so my grandfather's been living in a uh, assisted living facility for just about a year now. Um, but it, it seems that it got in through some of the caregivers, though even the patients themselves were occasionally leaving to go get tests at the hospital and not being quarantined when they came back. So who knows exactly how it came. Um, but because they were certain it was COVID, it really impacted funeral preparations and burial preparations. Right. I mean, like, that's the whole thing is it's so like, the whole focus of this doc, so much of it is about your grandfather and your grandmother's plans for his burial. And was he actually able to have any of the things that he'd been planning for years? I mean, kind of, but not really. And I think that's what's hardest for my grandmother and my mother right now. Um, you know, my mom keeps saying how he was so concerned with how the, the burial would look, what people would say, who would be there. And because it was COVID, um, he wasn't allowed to have a church service, so they weren't allowed to bring the casket into the church. Um, they buried him right away, less than 24 hours later. Um, and the priest was there to conduct the ceremony at his at his gravesite, but there wasn't anybody else there. There was my um, my grandmother's great niece, and there were the men who were actually there to help lower the casket into the the grave, and that was it. And they were actually in like full white, they're not full hazmat suits, but they're just like full head to toe suits and masks. They looked like astronauts or weird aliens like my mom sent me a video that um my grandma's niece had sent it's not what you imagine a funeral or a burial to be it felt like something out of a sci-fi novel um and it was just startling um so you know he still got the he's buried where he was supposed to be buried there was a priest at the burial, but there's a whole slew of traditions around burials where you um, you bring this sort of dish called koliva that is a traditional dish that is used to commemorate someone's passing, and you um, disperse it to the people at the funeral, and they weren't able to do that. So we <laughs> there's a picture of the koliva there on the gravesite next to him. They still bought it. They still... Um, uh, sort of did the you bless it and you cross the food before you eat it they did that but it's just there's nobody there to eat it things like that that are that are very bizarre how is your grandmother doing um she's she's taking it hard which i think my mom is a little surprised and even my grandma seems a little surprised but i'm not all that surprised i felt that all of her distancing from it was just a protection mechanism um, and she wasn't able to go to the gravesite. Um, her niece was going to take her there, but she had a little episode of her own. I think it was part shock, part, I don't know, um, high blood pressure. And they decided to leave her at home just to be safe. Oh, wow. That must have been so stressful for her not to be there. Yeah, they made these plans together. And even though, you know, they had their differences, I think... 
it was important for her to see them out and also important for her because I think, I mean, I'm assuming here, but I can only assume that it also makes her think about how things might not go as planned for her. Um, and I can see why that would be very stressful. Yeah. So much of this story is about, you know, the various ways we're trying to tame death. And in this case, by planning for it. And I mean, given what's happened, what do you make of that now? This attempt to plan for it or to manage it? Do you do you think that's worked for them at all? I don't. It doesn't seem to have worked all that. I mean, the planning didn't go as planned. And my mom feels like she's let him down. So I, I don't know. If anything, all that planning has made things harder right now for them because they couldn't execute it, even though it was totally out of their hands. And it, it leaves them with this guilt about not having executed it as my grandfather would have liked. I keep telling my mom that, you know, we'll do what we can where we are. And just because we don't do all these services right away doesn't mean we can't do them later to try and comfort her. But it's those rituals in planning, they obviously provided comfort in helping people feel like they had some sort of control over what was going to happen. But then they also provide comfort for the family afterwards in assuring themselves that they've done what this person's wishes were. And one of the things that she's struggling with the most is the fact that, you know, he he wanted people there and people weren't able to be there. And he was worried about whether people would think about him and come light candles for him. And in a way, me having done this documentary and the weird, unfortunate timing of it makes it so that a lot of people will hear about him and his story and maybe some of the people listening will light a candle for him. And in a way, even though people couldn't be at his gravesite in person, they'll be thinking of him. And even I, I'm thinking about that in a, in a way. I think it, it could be nice. Um, it's weird. <laughs> and, I, and it feels like, I don't know, it just it doesn't feel completely right, but it also feels nice in some ways. Oh, Eva. These funerals, I mean, these funerals and burial preparations are not like, they're not, not really, they're definitely not just about the person getting buried. They're for the rest of us. They're for you and your mom and for everyone who wants to grieve. And it seems like that process, that grieving process, the planned grieving has been interrupted by how things have Mm -hmm. gone. So, I mean, the idea of... Everyone lighting candles, I think, is really lovely. And, yeah, it it just, it seems like you're grappling with how you're going to grieve. How you and your mother are going to grieve from afar when all the plans have been uprooted. Yeah. Yeah. And how we can grieve as a family, even though, you know, half the family is in Romania and half of it is here. But in the end, I feel like, I'm happy to be able to honor him by talking about him in this way. I mean, take care of yourself. Thank you. And, uh, you know, hug your family that you can. E-hug your family. Keep E-hug your family. Yes. Yeah. I'll talk to you later. Uh, take care. Bye. Eva Vonijescu. The photos Eva just described of her grandfather's burial... She wanted to share those with you so you can see what she's talking about. They're on our website, cbc.ca slash docproject. 
And if you do light a candle for Jan Stefanescu, Eva's grandfather, we'd love for you to let us know. Share a photo with us. The best way is probably on Facebook so we can share them with Eva and her mom. You can find us on Facebook at The Doc Project. Coming up after the break, a story about the rituals that help us through. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. Christy Thompson grew up in small town BC with her older brother and her dad. Her mom left them when Christy was just three and her brother Kelly was six. I think I had a lot of anxiety as a child and fear of that people can leave. And that my mother could leave meant my father could leave. So I always really stuck close to his side. Growing up, Christy was happy to stay home, safe and cozy. But Kelly, he would go out exploring, climbing trees, getting into mischief. And then he'd come back and drag Christy along out of her shell to show her all the things he'd discovered. Kelly was kind of like my lifeline from which I could explore the world around me. And I really was never keeping him far out of view. After high school, true to form, Kelly traveled for a year with one of those around-the-world tickets, visiting Fiji and Australia and Thailand, and that was that. He had the travel bug. He would come home to BC in between month-long adventures with stories about his last trip and plans for his next one. At 27, he started planning this big adventure to hike the Annapurna Circuit, a 200-kilometer trek through the mountain ranges of central Nepal. But that trip? That one was different. It would change not only Kelly's, but Christie's life. This is Christie's story of what happened and the ritual she would develop 24 years later to try to process it. So Kelly was going to go to Thailand for a few weeks before heading to Nepal. And I was about to fly across the country to go to art school in Nova Scotia. I remember one of our last in-person conversations, and he was telling me how brave I was because I was moving away from home, and he really felt like that was something that he could never do, which I thought was really funny because... He was leaving home all the time. But I think he was also very attached to family and friends. And I felt like I needed to break that attachment a little bit and see who I was outside of our family. That was one of the last conversations I remember having. And then I flew off to school. And then a month or so later, he flew off to Thailand and then Nepal. So a couple months later, in mid-November, 
I went to a craft fair and a friend of mine introduced me to this man who was wearing this beautiful hat and and I said wow that's so beautiful and he said oh it's from Nepal and I said oh that's so interesting my brother is going to be there and he said oh have you heard about this landslide on the Annapurna circuit and I said oh that's awful and had this welling of emotion but Kelly wasn't supposed to be in Nepal yet and I left that craft fair and I went home and and then I think it was a couple of weeks later I came home to a couple of messages on my answering machine and I could tell in my dad's voice that something was wrong and so I phoned him he asked me if anyone was with me and I said no and he told me to get someone and I said no just tell me tell me and he told me that my brother was missing my dad had just gotten home and the police um, Interpol like international police had arrived at his door and told him that there'd been a freak storm that had come through and there'd been a landslide. The um, Canadian consulate had a passport and stuff of Kelly's, of my brother's, and it was very confusing there at the time because there'd been a lot of deaths and because there was other Canadians missing and he could potentially still be alive and lost or um, we just didn't know. And I just thought of Kelly and how he was such a good mountaineer and that if anyone could survive something, it would be him. My dad is very much a person of action and would not sit still. And so we decided that we were going there to search for Kelly. My brother's girlfriend wanted to come and my boyfriend wanted to come and a couple of Kelly's friends. And I think we all knew that Kelly would have done that too. Um, he would have done everything he could to try and find us or make sense of the situation if he were in our place. So with the help of the Canadian Embassy, we hired a search team and we flew to Kathmandu. So by now it's almost three weeks after the landslide and one of our first stops was the Canadian Embassy. We were taken up onto the rooftop and walking up the stairs onto the roof, it took my breath away. It was covered in belongings, things that had been found in the slide area. So everything was very muddy and there was backpacks and clothing and Ziploc bags full of film from cameras and boots. And so we just started sifting through the objects and 
we found a lot of Kelly's belongings. So we had this pile of mud-encrusted things and a lot of our hope really diminished at that point. How these objects, these inanimate things could survive and yet the thing that was most important was potentially gone and that being Kelly, this human that we all loved so much. We were also able to talk to other people who survived the slide. What happened was there was a very small stream that ran through a village and this huge storm created more water in the stream and I mean landslides are quite common in that area too so the travelers who were in that village that day were actually told not to travel for fear of landslide. And so many people stayed and they just hung out in their little tea houses playing cards and relaxing and meeting other travelers from all over the world. And so from what we know, that's what Kelly did that day. And there was no electricity in this village. And it was dark. And their hotel was at kind of the top of the village and it would have been the first building to be hit by the slide and there was no forewarning um, one person who did survive jumped from the second story and basically outran the slide and managed to get off to the side but the other people with him didn't or didn't outrun it, or didn't get out in time, or um, that part of the story we don't know. In my mind, I always think, Kelly would have been trying to help everyone else get out. So he would have been making sure that everyone else was up and trying to help them get out as well. That's one story I tell myself. Another story I tell myself is there was lots of pot <laughs> in that area and they were probably all really stoned. <laughs> and he was probably just laughing in his bed. Um, but these are all just stories that I make up. So the roads to the village where the slide had taken place were foot traffic only, and we knew it was going to take about three days to trek in. We were walking for, I think, about six hours a day, passing yaks and donkeys and people, and we were so overwhelmed by our emotions being t walking in the steps that he had taken we kind of imagined him with us in a way I'm not really someone who prays or has a religious faith but each village that we hiked through had prayer flags flying and sort of flapping in the wind as we passed through and as these bright colorful flags disintegrate on the wind, the prayers travel on the wind, 
I just was really just praying to find Kelly alive. We eventually arrived at this beautiful gateway that led to the village. So if you imagine a very tall, tall mountain with a stream running down from it through the center of a little village, and there were huge, huge boulders. It was part of the mountain that came down through the force of the water and the rain and the stones and the mud. And the slide just ripped through the center and cleared everything out through the center of the village, which was these tea houses where people were staying. And and then everything on either side remained intact. So there was people inches from the slide who survived. But if you were in the wrong place, the chance of survival was very, very small. I remember forming a human chain between us and all the villagers and walking very, very slowly. And we just scanned the land. And in doing that walk, we also really saw the massiveness of these boulders that had now sort of taken the place of buildings. And it just really hit us, just the magnitude and the power, I think the physical power. That's when it became very real that Kelly was gone. I remember seeing a bloated carcass of a of an animal, a cow or something, and it was sticking up out of the earth. And at that point, just thinking that I didn't want to find anything. It was easier to imagine that Kelly was just buried there. I wrote to Kelly in my journal that night that we didn't find you, but I felt you everywhere. The Lama performed a ceremony at the entrance to the village and being with all these villagers who were also grieving, they'd lost 11 people in their village and to see them carry on, they were rebuilding and finding their way after this experience and we just had this very long quiet day of remembrance, burning yak butter candles and just spending more time in silence. Leaving the mountain and leaving Nepal was hard because it also meant leaving Kelly leaving his body behind and having no physical body to mourn made it harder to integrate the loss and believe that he was actually gone. So grief was a hard thing to navigate. Was I still a sister? 
Was I an only child? Who was I without my brother who had always been by my side? I was studying ceramics, but I would look out the window of the ceramics building over at the weaving department across the road and just was very pulled, sort of emotionally pulled over to the weaving department. And I ended up enrolling in courses. And I would say weaving takes time and focus and concentration and that really grounded me and offered me little breaks from the intensity of my feelings of grief and loss. Moments of calm in that storm. So over the years since my brother's death, we'd kept many objects belonging to him big chunky sweaters or there was a toque that had a big pom-pom on top. All these knitted objects that sort of gave us comfort over time. And two summers ago now, my dad, he felt ready to let go of those objects and thought that I might want to do something with them. So he asked me and one of the first things I did was really to just sit with the objects and touch them and smell them and feel their textures. Just remembering Kelly and going for hikes with him and his toque with its pom-pom and him laughing and joking and walking along. And so it really invoked his spirit into the space with me. At that point, I started considering this idea of turning them into something else. And I imagined it as a symbolic, protective covering for his missing body. So that led me to this ritual of actually weaving a kind of burial shroud for my brother. So when I decided to start unwinding Kelly's clothing, I could just unwind and unwind, and it's sort of this really amazing, satisfying feeling of just pulling and pulling. But then on the other side of that is this giant heap of yarn getting tangled. So I would pull a few meters, and then I would start balling it up into these new balls of yarn. And... The other interesting thing that was happening too was that these objects, like they're probably all over 30 years old. And so they've been in this particular position for 30 years or more. And so they were quite kinky. They have this memory in them. So as I created these balls of wool, I just would wind them very lightly to try and keep that memory as I too want to remember all my stories that I created in my life with my brother. When I was ready to start weaving, I pushed my bed over to one side of the room and I set up my floor loom. It almost, like if you almost picture a piano or an organ, so as I pressed down on the foot pedals, 
it raises different threads. So you can shoot this little wooden boat called a shuttle across the horizontal, and that has your yarn in it. And then you repeat that, changing your feet. And in doing that, then you slowly, slowly, you're creating your fabric. Ideally, you get in this rhythmic, kind of meditative, mindful act where your whole body is engaged in the process. So your feet are working and your arms are working and there's a flow that happens. And so that was my fantasy at the beginning. But then because I was using so many different yarns, it was actually this kind of awkward and clunky and stop and start kind of practice. And it just reminded me so much of the experience of grief and other people's discomfort witnessing someone grieving. We have a funeral, we get maybe two weeks off work, and then we're kind of expected to just get on with our lives, even though our lives are forever changed. So instead of aiming for closure throughout this process, it felt like an honoring of my continued relationship with my brother. Sometimes while I was weaving, I would just lean over the loom and press my cheek into the weave. And it really felt like a, a shoulder to rest on. So I spent three months weaving and I mean, part of making something so long is it's slowly winding on itself. It was like I would make it and I would see it for a while and then it would get rolled up on itself and it would disappear at, at my knees. So as I came closer to the end, I was getting kind of excited to see what I'd been making all this time. So there was 180 threads that were tied onto the loom and so I slowly tied off each of those knots and took the weaving off the loom, meter after meter after meter, until the five meters were in a big pile on the floor. And I just kind of picked it all up and sat down on the floor and put it in my lap and felt the weight of it and looked at it as a whole for the first time. And it was really so beautiful. And I could see traces of the original sweater and toque in their shades of creams and browns that were running throughout this new fabric. And depending on how tightly or loosely I'd woven on a given day or in a given moment, it meant that some areas, like if you hold it up to the window, there's a lot more light that comes through it. It's like luminous and you see a lot more of the greens and the yellows. And then in some spots where it's very densely packed, very little light can come through. Kind of like grief. Sometimes it just feels so heavy and that there is no more light. And then there's other times where there's glimpses of 
color or or hope <laughs> that that comes back. I rolled it up in sort of a tube and I let myself sleep with this tube beside me and kind of just wrap my arms around it. And then I didn't need it anymore beside me. But now it's on our couch and we crawl under it and we get all tangled in it. And my daughter is often taking the long tassely bits and she likes to braid them and just kind of run her fingers through them. It's almost like hair, like long, long hair. And so it's very much incorporated into our home now and in our daily lives. I had made Kelly a photo album before he died. And I often look at it and try and imagine myself alone in all those photos because a lot of the photos in the album are of us together through our lifetime. And that album makes me so very grateful for the 24 years that I did have him in my life. Um, and maybe that's what the photos and the shroud do now is just remind me of how much he was a part of my life and that he is still so present in who I am now. That doc was produced by Mira Bertwintonic. It was edited by Allison Cook. Special thanks to Christian Carrière for one of the sounds used in that story. On our website, you can see photos of Christy and Kelly together as kids and of the shroud itself that she spent months making for him. You can find all of that at cbc.ca slash docproject. Please, as always, before you go, take a moment to rate and review us wherever you're listening, if you can. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Julia Poggle, Mira Bertwin-Tonic, Tanera McLean, Kevin Ball, Mark Apollonio, and me. Althea Manassin is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. And our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.